This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. Now, spreading freedom across the nation, this is 3, 2, 1. The Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Great to have you here as always. And uh, it is Freestyle Friday. The phone lines are as open as they're ever going to be because today I'm going to do my level, my level best not to get too deep into politics. It's amazing. I turned on one of the uh, shows. I rarely, I was in a place where I had access to cable. Uh, and so it was not my apartment. And uh, I managed to watch a bit of one of those morning political shows, which I never do. And they just talk, they're just talking about the polls. This is what anybody talks about. Are the polls accurate? What do the polls tell us? What's the poll? This like this is not this is not interesting. This is not something that I think we should be spending a tremendous amount of of time and energy on trying to find out, trying to figure out uh, what's the latest in polling data Uh, ah. and it's a friday so i feel like the data dumps and the late october surprises all the things that one could expect at this point in the election they don't want to do it on a friday so the the media is kind of in uh chill mode on friday because they're not going to put any big hit pieces out right the fridays when you put stuff out you don't want anyone to know about so it's not it's not useful to them right now so all you get is a lot of talk about the polls uh, the more I speak to friends of mine here and there, the more I see that they just want this whole election to uh, to basically be over. <laughs> they just everybody wants to know what our new reality is going to be, and we're almost there, team. I I think that that's we can have some uh, happiness with that, knowing that we are we are almost there. We are very close to um, being in a position where we know the future of the country politically or I shouldn't say know the future, but we know where we're heading almost, almost there. Um, so in terms of the, of the polls and all that stuff, I'm going to try to stay away from it. Also, the, the only news that I, that I think some of you may find interesting is the acquittal of the, uh, the Bundy, the Bundy acquittal that happened out there, the Bundy brothers. Um, so they were acquitted on one count on conspiracy Remember when they seized the uh, 
Maller Wildlife Refuge out in Oregon, I think it was. So the Bundy brothers are still in jail, but there was an acquittal yesterday, and people were really surprised by this. Usually when the feds bring charges, they know they're going to win. And if you take them to court, they also want to make it sting as much as possible. They, they want they want to take as much uh, as much pun or they want to inflict as much punishment on you as they possibly can. Right? This is the way the whole system is set up. But a jury came back and gave a, a non guilty verdict or uh, acquitted uh, Ryan Bundy and five others of conspiring to impede federal workers uh, from their jobs at the Mallard National Wildlife Refuge which is 300 miles southeast of Portland. Uh, the jury could not reach a verdict on a single count of theft for Ryan Bunny. There's some other charges there, too. Even attorneys for the defendants were surprised by the acquittals. It's stunning. It's a stunning victory for the defense. I'm speechless, says one, uh, uh, said one attorney for one of the defendants. So uh, I, I guess people, you know, this, this falls into that category of sometimes people just want to give a uh, only instead of a high five, a solitary finger to the federal government. I, I don't know. I don't think this is the way to do it, particularly. I, I'm not sure that uh, we should encourage people to sort of take wildlife refuges as an act of civil disobedience. I, I don't know. I, I haven't. I'll be honest with you. I haven't been following this this case that closely. Obviously, the election and then stuff going on with ISIS in Iraq and Syria has been much more on my radar than this. Um, but yeah, these federal prosecutors took two weeks, according to Fox, to present their case. And they finished with, uh, they showed 30 guns that were seized after the standoff. FBI agent testified that there were 16,000 live rounds and 1,700 spent casings found. I, mean, I guess just to show that these are scary people who had guns. Authorities had charged 26 of the occupiers with conspiracy, 11 pleaded guilty, and another had had the charge dropped. Uh, seven defendants chose not to be tried at this time, so there'll be other. Th- this is going to keep going. The other part of this you'll find as well is that the federal government is able to continue to bring. They'll just find other charges to bring. I mean, they will. They will get the Bundy brothers, which I- I'm not somebody who likes this notion that even when you even when you beat the feds in court, you're actually going to lose in the end. And the fact that you go to court in the first place, in most cases, means you've lost because your reputation. Generally speaking, although maybe not in this case, the Bundys have turned into something of uh, uh, folk heroes to people that believe the federal government owns way too much land and is uh, a bit a, a bit too iron fisted when it comes to its enforcement of certain rules and regulations on that land. But usually, if the feds bring charges against you, your reputation is ruined. Uh, you are going to go bankrupt and ba- or likely to go bankrupt, and it's just. A horrible circumstance. And the best possible case at the end of it is that you don't get sent to federal prison. So um, that's in, in terms of, of like news of the day, things that I want to bring up and, and bring up to speed on. There's that. Uh, there's some other and there's a lot of back and forth about the polls. Um, there's really not much else of tremendous uh, sort of new news interest, news cycle interest that's out there right now. I got to be honest with you. Um, there is a, a another the New York Post. I'm just running down some of the things that you might care to hear about. Because we're we're going to get into some Halloween stuff. It's basically where I'm taking all this. We're getting into some Halloween stuff. We've got a haunted places expert on today. I just look. I, this is sort of like last Friday. I just don't want to sit here and ramble on about the. We'll have tons of time to talk about this uh, very dispiriting election cycle. Uh, 
uh, more time than we probably want, and that will be happening, you know, next week and the well and the week after that, and it'll be sort of the post mortem of what happened in the election. So there's all we're, we're by all means, I promise you, this is a, a national security and political talk radio show, and we're going to talk plenty of politics. I just think I didn't get too much pushback from any of you last week on Friday when we did when we had the sloth expert and some other stuff. It was kind of nice to have a radio a radio day of rest in the sense that we don't have to constantly be charging the barricades with copies of the Constitution tattooed on our chests or something. I mean, we, we, we can sometimes just learn about some cool stuff and have some fun. And I know Monday is technically Halloween. I was sort of struggling with this, but I'd rather do a Halloween ish show today because Freestyle Friday. And Monday, there'll be new news. Right? As I said, today, there's really not any new news because it's all hit. It's all going to be hit stuff or polling. Polling is boring. And the hit stuff, they don't want to release on a Friday. Monday, I'm sure there'll be another, you know, Trump accuser will come out. And there'll, there'll, there'll be another WikiLeaks dump, I can assume, um, of, of data that is definitely annoying the Clinton camp. WikiLeaks has been the single most effective anti-Clinton organ uh, of this lower, or certainly of the last 90 days, uh, WikiLeaks has done more to undermine Hillary Clinton's presidency than any news outlet by far. Not, it's not even close. Uh, I don't approve of their methods. And I, I think that living in a world where any of us can get hacked and our information can be uh, pillaged in that way is definitely uh, concerning. It's definitely problematic. But with that said, um, they've given us a window into the Clinton camp that has been fascinating and I think has been very useful uh, for this election cycle. So WikiLeaks is uh, I, I still think they I still think they're a, a bad or an, an organization that isn't what it pretends to be or, or isn't what it says that it is. But it also that doesn't mean that there's nothing that comes from it that's interesting. Yeah, this is uh, it's pretty fascinating stuff. Um, Clinton uh, donor got a State Department invite and Bill got 17 million. Here we go. This is the New York Post. I've talked about this before. This is Laureate International University. So this is not a, a new news story. The head of a for-profit university that donated up to $5 million to the Clinton Foundation was rewarded with an invite to a high-profile State Department dinner at the request of then-Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Doug Becker, CEO of Laureate International University, got his senior VP, Joseph Duffy, into the meeting of world-class academics. Because Becker was someone who likes Bill a lot, and his school was the fastest-growing college network in the world. Well, roughly nine months later, the university signed Bill Clinton to a honorary chancellor deal, paying him $17.6 million over five years. If that's not pay-to-play, if that's not corrupt, there's nothing that is. Honorary chancellor? You're getting paid $17 million over five years? I mean, this is like a... a a big contract for like a world-class athlete honorary chancellor almost 20 million bucks almost four million dollars a year so they can use his name and, and his likeness in some things please it's because of uh, connections it's because his wife is secretary of state and laureate university because it operates on an international scale having connections to the state department it's, it's very important um it was very useful People just don't care anymore. I mean, the, the good part about all of this, I have to say, is that now at least corruption has been laid bare for the American people to see at the very highest levels. And I do hope there'll be a, a return, a, a return to a sort of deep cynicism in the way that we view politicians and in our politics. That's what I'm hoping for. 
that could be one of the best outcomes of this entire election. So with all that said, um, I'll poke around. There's a few more stories we'll hit. Whatever you want to talk about, if you want to tell me about your Halloween plans, if you've got a cool story about you know, the origins of a Halloween monster or something, or you just want to talk the election, I don't know, anything you want. It's Friday. We're hanging out. I'm really glad to be chilling with you. We got a few hours here to just do our thing, freestyling and buckwilding. Phone lines are open, 888-900-3393. Whatever you want to talk about, light up those lines. If you've never called in before, today would be a great time to call in because you talk about whatever. I mean, it's always a great day to call in, but today in particular, um, I have a very, I mean, I have guests. There's some, we'll kind of get into more structure later. I just woke up this morning and I was seeing one, of, I saw one of these shows and they're talking about the poll. I just find it so boring and it's kind of useless at this point. Yeah, we'll check in here or there to see if the race is dramatically tightened or if, if the gap has widened between the two candidates. But to to get into the state by, oh, this is what it says in Ohio and this is what it says in New Hampshire. And this is what, it's going to be different in a week. So who cares? And we're going to find out the real answer even sooner than that. I see now I'm falling into the trap of talking. I'm I'm trying to not talk about polls. And I'm talking about polls. Um, we will go into a break. And we're going to talk about all kinds of fun stuff. We'll be right back. (laughs) Buck Sexton. Dispensing the truth. On the Blaze Radio Network. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show. 888-900-3393. Neil in Nebraska, you're on The Buck Sexton Show. What's up, sir? Hey, Buck, Shield High. Shield High. Uh, so I had a question, and I thought I'd give it to you since it's in your wheelhouse. Um, I wanted to know what the connection was between the uh, Kurdish Workers' Party, the PKK, yeah. and the Peshmerga. Okay. Uh, well, the, 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 Kurdish, the PKK uh, is a Marxist, like sort of separatist group. Um, okay. And the Kurdish Peshmerga are the sort of unofficial, but uh, well, they're not unofficial, really. They're the armed forces of uh, the Kurdistan region of northern Iraq. All right. So, okay. P- so there's no formal relation between the two entities in any way. 
No, I mean, yeah, they they would say that they are they're totally separate. They're separate entities, and um, you know. But look, here's the reality: there are there's the YPG militia, which has has been very useful, which are just which are basically Kurdish guys with military training, some military vehicles, and AK-47s. Very useful in Syria and fighting against the Islamic State. The YPG militia, if you listen to the Turks, is essentially just a, a rebranding of the PKK, um, and there are, you know, there are the, the Kurds in northern Syria, the Kurds in northern Iraq, and the Kurds in Turkey. Uh, look, they all speak Kurdish. Uh, they have their own language. Right. They have their sort of, you know, bonds of uh, bonds of kinship uh, that exist between them. And there's some there's cooperation. The level of cooperation depends on what specific part of the country you're talking about and, and also who you ask. Uh, so, okay. I mean, PK, PKK has been waging an insurgency against uh, against Turkey for a long time now. Um, and it's, again, sort of a Marxist liberation struggle. It's sort of like the old school, you know, 70s, 80s uh, terrorist group. Right. It's it's a, a different it, it's not a jihadist entity at all. So, yeah, that's that's kind of the difference. I, I think that's one way to. I mean, it, it has okay. Marxist-Leninist roots. I mean, it's been around for decades. And the, the Turks are very annoyed that we are using... Look, I'm pretty sure that some of these YPG fighters are also PKK fighters, right? <laughs> it's the same thing. Okay. So so there's crossover. It's a little murky. I, I know I'm sort of speaking in a circle on this, but that's because the answer is really... There are differences and there are similarities, and it depends. Um, and right. it's a very sensitive issue with Turkey because uh, Turkish nationalism and Kurdish aspirations for a state uh, butt heads very aggressively, and the Turks do not like that they have a considerable Kurdish minority along the Syrian and Iraqi border uh, that would like to have their own their own state, not speak Turkish, and not have to deal with all that stuff, right? So they view right. that as the single biggest threat that they have to deal with. And YPG would be the group that the U.S. is supporting in Syria? Yeah, YPG is a Syrian Syrian Kurdish militia. The Peshmerga are a uh, Iraqi Kurdish uh, militia. I mean, they're, they're, they're really, it's really the military of Iraqi Kurdistan. That's, the, that's Peshmerga. Um, right. The YPG are Kurdish militias operating in northern Syria. And let me look. I've been to this part of the world. It's going from northern Iraq to northern Syria is just getting on a highway and going across a border checkpoint. Right. So there's not a you can imagine there's there's a fair amount of of crossover um, the crossover here. So is that, is that's it, it is a, it is complicated. <laughs> if that's if that's helpful to my answer, which I know is a little bit of a meandering answer. But I, I gave you what I could for Much now. Neil. Anything else? Now. No, that was that was I just wanted more information on that because I had heard terrorist events in the south of Turkey involved with PKK. And that's a Kurdish group. And then, well, the Peshmerga is a Kurdish group that I know we support in Iraq. And I just didn't know how it all connected. Yeah, no, it's a big it's it's a big mess. So um, and look, I think the PKK has, has clearly taken the opportunity to sort of stand up as anti-ISIS fighters they're benefiting from that now and they realize that they can sort of do a rebranding. And if the U S is working with them, I mean, if we have UF special forces embedded with PKK guys, guess what? Uh, the Turks better not bomb them or else they're gonna have a big problem on their hands. So there's a lot of stuff going on with that. But Neil, I appreciate you calling it from Nebraska shields. high. Uh, Greg in Texas. What's up, Greg? Hey, Buck. 
glad, glad I got to talk to you. Listen, I, I want to talk about uh, misinformation, as it were. Um, you know, with all we use misinformation a lot in Vietnam. Some people call it lying, but you put stuff out there that are uh, that you want them to hear. You know what I'm saying? It, yeah. It's not. It's, it, it's straight up a lie. Well, I think that's going on a little bit in this campaign. You, you think I there's think like information operations happening? Exactly. I think that well, the uh, campaigns are certainly doing that. Yeah. I, I think that. Yeah, I think that that is kind of prolific this time around. Um, oh. When I when I and I'm talking about the polls. Everybody's talking to polls. So I don't even listen to that stuff anymore. I've already voted. I voted early in Texas. Bottom line is, it's it, it's just to the point of being sickening. And uh, I just wanted to get your take on it. Where you think they do that as well? Uh, I don't. I think that the I think the polls. I think that most pollsters are probably trying to get it right because you don't want to be a pollster that's way off. Because then, why are people going to pay you for your polls, right? Or why are people going to pay pay attention to you? So I think that there's a built-in incentive for polls to be right. I just think that the, the polls that the media chooses to highlight among the polls and which states they're giving attention to and, uh, you know, th- that's where the sort of uh, the information operation side of it comes in. That's where it becomes a more subjective subjective thing. I, I don't think mo- most of the major polling companies are there saying, let's help Hillary win by trying to make this th- thing seem over before it is. Um, so I, I hope that's... Uh, That's my answer for you, Greg. Shields High. Team, got more coming. We'll talk some Halloween stuff. We'll be right back. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Dracula or Vlad the Impaler expert joining us later on today on the program. I want to do a little review of the real Dracula. Play it. Let's talk about the real Dracula. Jonathan Harker's Journal, 3rd of May, Bistritz. Left Munich at 8.35 p.m. on 1st of May, arriving at Vienna early next morning. Should have arrived at 6.46, but train was an hour late. Budapest seems a wonderful place. From the glimpse which I got of it from the train and the little I could walking through the streets. I feared to go very far from the station as we had arrived late and would start as near the correct time as possible. The impression I had was that we were leaving the west and entering the east, the most western of splendid bridges over the Danube, which is here of noble width and depth, took us among the traditions of Turkish rule. The opening words of Bram Stoker's Dracula, one of the most famous horror story novels uh, of all time, and obviously has given us the modern character of Dracula. 
but as many of you no doubt know, Dracula is based on a real historical figure, a figure, in fact, who lived during one of the times in history that I find most fascinating and most uh, understudied, and that is the time of the Ottoman conquest of Europe. In fact, one of the high points of Ottoman conquest, Vlad, Vlad the Impaler, as he is often as he's often called, as he's well known, was someone who was on the fringes of Christendom. He was on the edge of the Eastern Christian world and was on the very frontier against the Turkish menace. Now, the Turks had already, by the time uh, Vlad came around, begun their major inroads into Europe and seized uh, countries. But I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. Let's talk a bit first about how the name came about. Why? How did Vlad the Impaler become Dracula? And those of you who want to do a little reading or research on this on your own, there's a very good book, Dracula, Prince of Many Faces, by Radu Florescu and Raymond McNally, uh, which I can recommend to you. Um, here's what they wrote about Dracula, the name, and how we got to this character today from the historical figure, Vlad. Well, first, of all, his, first of all, his name comes from his father, in fact. His father was called Dracul by the boyars, McNally and Florescu, right, who knew of his honor because he was a draconist, a member of the Order of Dragons. Draco in Latin means dragon. That order was dedicated to fighting Turks and heretics. On the other hand, the people at large, unfamiliar with the details of Vlad's investiture in the order, seeing a dragon on his shield and later on his coins, called him Dracul with the meaning of the devil because in Orthodox iconography, particularly those icons that depicted St. George slaying a dragon, a dragon symbolized the devil. The word drac, ul, is is simply the uh, definite article, the, can mean both devil and dragon in the Romanian language. It's important to underscore the fact that at the time, the use of this particular nickname in in no way implied that Dracul was an evil figure, in some way connected with the forces of darkness, as some have suggested. The name Dracula, immortalized by Bram Stoker, was later adopted or rather inherited by Dracul's son. So Dracula is the son of Dracul. So he that's where the name initially comes from. And it has to do with uh, his father being inducted into an order that was something along the lines of the Knights Templar, the Knights of St. John, the Knights Hospitaller the Teutonic Knights, all of these Christian fighting orders that had, at least over time, it became their mission, some of them didn't start with this as their mission, to fight against the Islamic conquest, to fight against the menace of uh, Muslim invasion that had been for centuries chipping away at Christendom and, in fact, had threatened uh, the very heart of Christendom at various times, whether Charles, uh, whether turned back at Tours by Charles Martel or the various sieges of Vienna, we talked about the Battle of Lepanto, which came after Dracula's time, um, and there were moments where it seemed as though the Ottoman conquest was going to extend to the very heart of Europe himself, of Europe itself. Dracula, uh, and we'll just call him that even though I'll go back and forth with Dracula and, and Vlad the Impaler, was somebody who lived during this very uncertain, very bloody uh, period. He, somebody from the 15th century, who was trying to hold back against the hold back the Ottoman conquest? Now, a bit of backstory on him, I think, is is, is necessary, and, and perhaps even establishing a few things. 
I'm going to talk to you about his role in history, and we'll talk about some of the important moments in, in Dracula's life, and Vlad the Impaler's life, and we'll get into why he's called that in just a minute. Uh, but keep in mind that, yes, he was somebody who was psychotic, in a sense, right? I mean, he wasn't crazy in that he didn't know what was going on around him, but he had a certain bloodlust, and depending on the sources and depending on uh, the numbers, whether you believe the numbers or not, was responsible for the very savage torture and butchery of many, many thousands of people, tens of thousands of people. Now, part of that was in the consolidation of his rule as a prince of Wallachia, which was at the time a part of the Kingdom of Hungary, now in Romania, uh, an area of Eastern Europe that is cut by the Carpathian Mountains. And as you, if you read Bram Stoker's original Dracula, he actually gives some uh, fairly accurate detail about dishes that he would eat over there and, uh, you know, the food that people would eat and, and the, uh, the sort of sense of, of the foreboding Carpathian Mountains and had done some study of the various uh, ethnic groups and peoples in the region. So that was, it was sort of almost like you were able to get a tour of the region by reading the book, and the tour is, relatively speaking, pretty accurate. Um, but so back to the... Back to the very beginnings here. So what you have is this prince, this prince of an Eastern European principality in Wallachia, who is coming into a world where the possibility of uh, a loss to the Ottomans, losing your entire kingdom, losing everything and everyone you know to the Ottomans, is very real. And this is where I start to get into the comparisons, because Dracula was someone who impaled thousands of people. He was a brutal, vicious guy. There's no question about that. Perhaps some of the numbers are a bit inflated, but the stories about the sorts of things that he would do invite whole groups of people. The boyars, which is a term I may also use again, were the nobility, the landed nobility. Think of them as the lords. It's an Eastern European term you'll hear about it in people talking about the kingdom of Hungary, which at this time was a very powerful kingdom. We don't usually think of Hungary as much of a power or Poland as much of a power, but these are... Uh, these were, in fact, kingdoms at the time that had considerable resources and manpower at their disposal. And again, were the first and in some ways last defense for uh, Eastern, uh, for the Eastern fringe of, of Christendom against the invading Ottoman armies. And it wasn't as though there was a fear. It wasn't a war that had been put off well into the future and they just didn't know when it would happen. There were continuous campaigns by the Ottomans uh, at this point in time. We're talking about really the early to mid 15th century. So this is a, a period in which the Ottomans continue to come into Eastern Europe and seize more territory. But they're also dealing with a very fractured Europe. So Vlad uh, is born at a time. Uh, he's born in 1431 in the Kingdom of Hungary today. What is today Romania? And he's Vlad the third prince of Wallachia and a member of the house of Draculesti. So he was part of because of his father, he was tied to this Order of the Dragon, which, remember, was created specifically as a means of having a religious order to fight against the Ottoman Turks, because the Ottoman Turks had the explicit and stated goal of invading through the East and wiping out Christianity, replacing it with Islam. So not only does he exist at a time when there's the constant threat of invasion through campaign seasons, right? It's, they knew it was coming. It was just a question of when and where. But that was the way the Ottoman Empire was sustaining itself. We often hear about this. And, you know, I, I do a fair amount of revisionist history with you when we talk about the Ottomans. 
uh, correct, I believe, in the revisions. You know, the people will talk about how bloodthirsty Vlad the Impaler was. Do you know where he learned impaling and the techniques of torture and a willingness to kill anyone, including family members, to torture them, murder them, didn't matter at all, from the Ottomans? He was, in fact, partially raised in the Ottoman tradition, spent years in the Ottoman court. But I'll get there in just a second. But I just felt it's necessary to put in the proper context who it is we're talking about. When we talk about the real Dracula, the the historical figure that gave us one of the most timeless and, and storied monsters, villains. Think of all the TV shows, all the movies, everything that's come out of this character of the blood-drinking Count Dracula. It was this very vicious but incredibly crafty and effective in certain ways. Uh, bloodthirsty, yes, but think of, think of Vlad... Prince of Wallachia as a rabid pit bull that you would not want to be around. But if you were about to be attacked by a pack of wolves, a rabid pit bull may be your best friend. He was terrible to the people who he ruled over, to be sure. He took a certain delight in exacting the most horrific and atrocious revenge imaginable against the boyar class, whom he hated, absolutely hated all of these landed nobility but he also hated the turks he hated the ottoman sultan even more and he was like the turks willing to do just about anything to win anything to win and when you're facing the eradication of everything you know and keep in mind by the way in many cases it would be either slavery because you won't hear this much but the ottomans practiced a massive slave trade They took slaves by the tens of thousands during each raiding season. There are single instances where the Ottomans would come into a town or city and take 30 or 40 or 50,000 slaves. Many of them worked to death in mines. Many of them used for harems or brothels. Men, women, children did not matter. Slaves. The Ottomans were a slave, had a slave empire. So for someone in Wallachia or Transylvania, which is perhaps most closely associated with Vlad, although that was a place that he had to consolidate into his rule. So in coming from that part of the world at this time, not only faced the possibility of their village or their city, their town, completely burned to the ground, everyone killed or enslaved, but also the loss of their soul if they were given the choice of death or conversion. And this was a time when people believed if you were a heretic, if you were in fact even a Christian who deviated from orthodoxy, you would face eternal hellfire. So the stakes are very high indeed. You have the Ottomans preparing to use the Danube River. If they could only seize a few fortified places on the way to use the Danube River as a highway into the very heart of Europe itself to take Vienna and from Vienna, Paris, and from there all the rest. That was the for a point. moment, everybody. Let's stop dragging. We'll come back to it. Um, I love this stuff. I'm, I'm, I have to go check out some of these sites. I don't know if I want to do a Dracula book or a Lepanto book. Maybe I can combine them. Although that's kind of hard because the periods. Anyway, whatever. Team, 888-900-3393. We've got a lot more. Stay with me. Buck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. 
Sexton. Scott in Ohio, you're on the Buck Sexton Show. What's up, my friend? Uh, good afternoon, Buck. Shield tie. Shield tie. Uh, oddly enough, sir, I actually was calling to thank you for the Lepanto episode that you did. Um, oh. I, I know you put a lot of effort into it. I've listened to it a few times. It was very interesting. Thank, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. It, would, it was a lot of effort. I would love to do a lot more of those, and I, I do plan on doing that. But I also plan on writing a book and doing an hour TV show at night for the Blaze and doing a three-hour radio show. So as you can imagine, Scott, you know, there's ah. only so many hours. But I'm so I, I'm so appreciative that you like the Lepanto show. That was a that was a true labor of love. Well, it, it was uh, very informative and very entertaining. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I was actually going to ask if uh, you had others planned, and. Um, I heard a very compelling argument that one of the reasons we actually slipped into the Dark Ages or something that helped retard the growth of a new empire after the fall of the Roman Empire were the um, recurring Ottoman or Islamic attacks on basically Italy and Spain. And I was wondering uh, what you would think of that. Well, the the Ottoman menace in in Italy and Spain um, and really the, the sort of the, the, the slave empire of the Ottoman that the Ottomans had was a much greater threat. I mean, the notion, like, the, the kids were told that the Turks would come for them. The Turks were like a boogeyman. I mean, parents would tell their kids, you know, behave or else the Turks will come for you in, on the coast of Spain. And it was a real, I mean, it wasn't a real threat, but it was a, it was based on the real concern of the constant raiding that the, uh, that the Turks through the, what, what we later called the Barbary states of North Africa would do. I mean, they made it as far north as Iceland on slave raids. They were taking slaves off the coast of uh, other taking slaves uh, from islands off the coast of Great Britain. That's how far the Turkish slave traders went. So I, I don't know about the theory that uh, that the, the fall or that the Dark Ages. What was it? The, the, uh, what was the specific theory again? That well, that, that it just uh, basically helped retard the growth of a new empire and uh, a lot of basically to kind of slip into the Dark Ages that we may have recovered. Oh yeah, well they, they destroyed the Byzantine Empire, so that's definitely a part of it. Let me give that some more thought, but uh, Scott, thank you for raising the idea. Team, we'll be right back. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome back to the Freedom Hunt for Hour Two. We're doing a bit of a freestyle, a little bit of news updates here and there, and of course some Halloween prep because I assume most of you will be doing your Halloween stuff this weekend. Although maybe Monday night you'll be out partying. I do have to give you some breaking news. Uh, I don't have much of the way details on it, and I don't think, quite honestly, it will in the long run really matter much. But the FBI uh, is apparently, according to NBC News and uh, Representative Jason Chaffetz here on Twitter, the FBI is reopening the investigation to Hillary Clinton's emails. Jason Chaffetz from his official Twitter account says, FBI Director just informed me, the FBI has learned of the existence of emails that appear to be pertinent to the investigation. Case reopened. 
it's not it's not gonna go, eh, it's not gonna go anywhere <laughs> sorry I wish I could tell you. I don't know why they're doing this or why this is out there right now but it doesn't it doesn't matter it's not gonna change anything that's my that's my assessment at least maybe I'm too cynical Alice in Rochester New York you're on the Bucks Action show welcome hi Buck hi hi Buck listen um I just wanted to talk to you about Bram Stoker's Dracula, which is one of my very favorite all-time novels. And the thing that I liked about it, well, I liked a lot about it. I couldn't put it down. But one of the things I liked about it the most was the way that they treated the young woman that was um, possessed. Her name was Mina. They treated her like she was their intellectual equal, which you don't see that much back in the day, those days. And it was really refreshing, and uh, they had tremendous respect for her and her ability to um, fight this guy and, you know, what he, what he had done to her. So that's my take on um, Bram Stoker's Dracula. It's a great, a great novel. Things. I mean, a timeless, a timeless oh, novel yeah. still really stands up, uh, you know, this day. I didn't love the um, film version with Keanu Reeves and Gary Oldman. I don't know why, and it was it, it was pretty decent uh, in terms of storyline, but I just I, stylistically I wasn't a huge fan. I don't know. There was something about it that I kind of wish I had seen. Uh, who's the guy who does who did like Sleepy Hollow and those times? You know what I'm talking about? No, no, no. Oh. Well, yeah, but I mean the director Tim Burton. I feel like Tim Burton would do. Oh, an inter- Tim Burton. Yeah, I feel like I feel like Tim he Burton, would do an yeah. interesting an interesting Dracula interpretation. Um, yeah, you know, there's so many would. terrible ones where it's you know like Dracula 2050, and there's like laser guns and Dracula's like it's so it's obviously no, a, no, a huge no. character, a timeless character. Um, but no. yeah, yeah, there was we, nothing like the book. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, the okay. book the book is great. Well, Al- Alice, thank you very much. Have a have a happy Halloween, and thank you for calling in from uh, Rochester, Frank in PA, the state that could determine the future of our union. What's up, Frank? Shields high. Shields high. Hey, good. Good segue into uh, women's equality. Uh, have you heard they'd like to start drafting our daughters? I'm reading about this today. Uh, I've heard people have said that. I I don't think if, I don't think if, the uh, American people. If yeah, they, I mean they're not they drafting manage, anybody right now, as Ty points out. But yeah, if they do manage to to pass that, that will be the government saying that it has the right to compel our daughters to fight and die to protect government interests separate and above from her own, but they don't have the right to tell them to uh, carry a baby to, to, full, to its uh, final trimester, through its final trimester, because one of those two things is too great of an imposition. Uh, it's, there's a sort of a paradox there. Uh, I think uh, those are not really related issues but i see where you're going i think um but yeah I, just saying it's a, it's a big it would be a big paradox to say one of those two things is is too great of an imposition and it's it happens you know well i, I don't think they're, gonna be, they're not going to be drafting or, or you know drafting women in this country anytime soon i, ho- I hope they're not going to be drafting anybody anytime soon but frank from pa uh your vote is important so go vote good to talk to you uh, let's get back into some Dracula to get in the spirit of things for Halloween. Play it, Ty. At last there came a time when the driver went further afield than he had yet gone. And during his absence, the horses began to tremble worse than ever and to snort and scream with fright. 
I could not see any cause for it, for the howling of the wolves had ceased altogether. But just then the moon, sailing through the black clouds, appeared behind the jagged crest of a beetling pine-clad rock, and by its light I saw around us a ring of wolves, with white teeth and lolling red tongues, with long, sinewy limbs and shaggy hair. They were a hundred times more terrible in the grim silence which held them than even when they howled. For myself, I felt a sort of paralysis of fear. It is only when a man feels himself face to face with such horrors that he can understand their true import. More from Bram Stoker's 1897 classic, Dracula, which is a great read, by the way. Uh, forget about all these other... Uh, vampire ripoffs you see going on all the time. It's still a great read, even to this day. Very well written, moves very quickly. The plot device of writing diary entries is, uh, or rather the um, narrative device, narrative tool of, of that is, is very effective. So that's the mythological Dracula. Back to the real one, Vlad Dracula. So as I said, he comes into this world where the biggest threat to Christendom, the biggest threat to him, to him and to his family, uh, to everyone he knows, is the Ottoman Empire. The jihad. This was always spoken about in very religious terms. You won't get this when you learn about it for the most part in school. It's always spoken about as, you know, uh, expansion for resources or whatever. But in fact, the Ottomans justified their conquest, which also, by the way, was incredibly brutal and vicious and entire villages, cities slaughtered, massive amounts of slaves taken. Sure, sometimes they would give you the option of surrendering, and then there would still be slaves taken, but they wouldn't necessarily kill everybody. But if you weren't really into the idea of becoming a vassal of this Muslim state, keep in mind that at this point in time, to be under the thumb of a Muslim ruler, to have to bow down to a Muslim ruler if you were a Christian, was to have to bow down for all intents and purposes to some sort of familiar of Satan. This was considered evil. It was not... We, this was not a period when there was diversity of religious thought as some kind of a, a principle espoused. So for many, it would have been worse than death to be forced to be an Ottoman subject. And Dracula certainly fell into that category. So when he comes into the world, uh, the Sultan Murad had already taken much of Bulgaria and Serbia. And there were a series of efforts underway by the Christian, by the very uh, fractured and factionalized war in Christian states of all of Europe, but particularly of, 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 Eastern, of Eastern Europe, to try and gather together to rally to the cause of Christendom and have, yes, a crusade. In fact, the Pope in Rome was trying to get the funds and the buy-in from various nobles and royalty to wage a crusade because Constantinople, the most important city ever conquered by, a, by the Muslim uh, jihad. Constantinople was on its last legs. It was on its deathbed. The Byzantine Empire, which still existed at this time, was gasping its last few breaths. So that's the situation on the continent. That's when he comes into the world in 1431. By 1453, Constantinople, in fact, fell. It fell to a Muslim. It fell to one of these uh, conquest jihads. And it fell in part because of the advent of large caliber cannons used to batter the fortifications that had kept Constantinople going all up until this time. And this had been a goal of uh, of the Islamic world for centuries. 
And this was a cataclysmic event in the eyes of the Christian West. Now, this happened during Dracula's adulthood. Let's talk a little bit about what life was like as he was growing up. His father was a noble, and uh, his father was, in fact, allied with the Turks, with the Ottomans, uh, at different times. This was commonplace. One of the methods that the, that the caliphate, that, which, of course, run by the caliph, who was the sultan, one of the methods they would use for conquest was to buy off uh, lower-level lords or to buy off some principality here or there to turn them against each other. They were employing, with real success, a divide-and-conquer strategy. Dracula's father was part of that very complex tapestry of allegiances and betrayals. And long story short, he ended up having to actually give his son over to the Sultan. All right, team, into a break. We'll be right back. This is the Buck Sexton Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Because whenever I think of Dracula, I somehow also think of the Count from Sesame Street. I mean, like, that's the voice that comes into my head, probably, which is not the scariest. One, two, three. Um, speaking of one, two, three, I wonder how many emails they found that made them reopen this Hillary investigation. I have a hard time buying that this means much of anything. I'm be totally frank with you. I just what now they're going to press charges? Yeah, right. They're going to oh, they're going to press charges in a week. They're reopening the investigation? What does this mean? Uh, how is this going to do anything? This, it took months and months and months for them to get, you know, to the point where they decided not to bring, Comey decided not to bring charges. So they're, they're, they're well, we're really to believe that they're going to like, oh, if Hillary wins, they're going to charge her. Well, she, <laughs> it's just a joke. What a joke. I guess maybe, maybe the FBI wants to sort of regain some of its lost credibility. Who knows? Jim in Maryland, you're on the Buck Sexton Show. Good to have you, sir. Buck, Shields High. Shields High, Jim. All right. Just turned 40, by the way. And, uh, oh, happy birthday you know, and congrats. Uh, yeah. And that's, and you're like, hey, you're 40. You're like, oh, wow. <laughs> but uh, there it is. I, I don't feel 40. But uh, <laughs> a couple things. So uh, Donald Trump, <clears throat> as, as crazy as he makes me, because, like, you, you'll want to – to like him, but even though he does crazy things, I can't wait for the State of the Union address if he wins. Like, what a what a crazy thing that would be. I have a hard time envisioning it. But uh, Clinton, if lightning struck all the people that that are in illegal cahoots with her, man, what a mountain of ash. Like, I can't... The whole thing would be burnt down. But uh, craziness. What do, you, what do you think about this email situation, that they're reopening the case? I'm, I'm open to any theory. This just broke while I was on air, uh, NBC News reporting on it, others as well. But what what could that possibly – or you know, I, I don't know. I, I can't think of a scenario where this 
makes any sense other than maybe the FBI is just sick of all the criticism and sick of being told they're so politicized. So they open the investigation. At least it takes the heat off them until Hillary does become president in their eyes. And then it's like, come on, she's the president. What are we going to do? I, I don't yeah. see how this is. I don't see how this is legit is what I'm trying to say. Like th- th- there's any consequences from this. I have to call shenanigans uh, on this. Yeah, you're just trying to do it to a, hey, look over there. Uh, you've said it a hundred times. Uh, you know, look, look over there. We're not. We're going to try to do something, but uh, no. To to suspect that uh, the Clintons are are, are going to be in trouble here anytime soon, especially if she wins, it is ridiculous. Uh, I can't believe it. Um, yeah. So that to answer your question, no, that's, that's garbage. Just another foolish thing. Yeah, it, it seems. It seems to me to be uh, just. Com- there's. There's no way that that turns it. Well, they're gonna they're gonna do an investigation and charge her in a week. I mean, they're they're not gonna charge her if she becomes president. So I don't know. Maybe the, I, maybe this is just. I mean, it's from an official NBC News account, and I've, and Jason Chavitz's official account has said it too. So uh, you know, and I, Ty, take a look if you would and see if there's anybody else. Um, you know, anybody else that's uh, reporting on this one. I just I well, can't imagine. Yeah, 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 I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, you know, absolutely. But the one more thing before I, before somebody else takes the call. But uh, I wanted to say I love your impressions. Uh, oh, they are you. hysterical. Uh, I love the hey, Bernie hey, Sanders. What's going on? Yeah, you like Bernie uh, Sanders? Yeah, I'm sorry. We but, haven't had much time with Bernie in a while. It's been a little while. So yeah, I know. But my my all time favorite now, and I have a twin brother actually, and uh, we love uh, your Alex Jones. <laughs> I think even my Alex Jones, I feel like it's so accurate. Even Alex Jones should like my Alex Jones. So there you go. Oh, it's so funny. And so now we're like, I'll get a flat tire on the road. I'm like, it's happening now. (laughs) You know, just just weird things. Just remember, anything bad that happens, it's my fault. It's part of the Illuminati conspiracy, (laughs) the Bilderbergs. Uh, So, yeah, absolutely. Jim, great to talk talk to you from Maryland, man. Shields high. Thank you for calling in. All right, here we got Washington Post on this um, FBI to conduct a new investigation of emails from Clinton's private server. This is what the Washington Post. <coughs> excuse me. This is what the Washington Post is reporting. The FBI will investigate whether additional classified material is contained in emails sent using Hillary Clinton's private email server while she was Secretary of State. FBI Director James Comey informed congressional leaders Friday. Okay, okay, this is legit. The announcement appears to restart the FBI's probe of Clinton's server less than two weeks before the presidential election. An explosive development that could shape the campaign's final days. In a letter to congressional leaders, Comey said that the FBI had, in connection with an unrelated case, recently learned of the existence of emails that appear to be pertinent to the Clinton investigation. Comey indicated he had been briefed on the new material yesterday. I agreed that the FBI should take appropriate investigative steps designed to allow investigators to review these emails to determine whether they contain classified information, as well as to assess their importance to our investigation. Wow. Okay. I mean, I still think this goes nowhere, but I, I don't I don't have a clear picture in my head of what's going on here, which I don't like. I like to always know what the government's up to. Even when they're lying, I can usually tell what they're up to. This I don't really get. This is strange to me. Another investigation in Hillary's emails? Were they, were they looking into classified elsewhere and stumbled upon communications with Hillary? I, I don't know. Something strange going on. Even apart from how we got to this point with the investigation, though, we have to think what could really be the outcome here. And I think it's very clear the outcome would have to just be or the only the only possible outcome is that 
if Hillary becomes president, this goes away. Um, there's just nothing. Or we see a repeat of what happened before. Okay, yeah, there's some more classified in the emails. Yeah, yeah, she shouldn't have done it, but, you know, it wasn't intentional. And, and so we're, we're, as Yogi Berra said, we're deja vu all over again. Uh, that could happen here. Again, with no consequences. That's a possibility. I, I could see that being the end result. And, and, and I, as I said, the only the FBI maybe gets points for thoroughness. And also this perhaps takes some of the sting out of the obvious polit- politicization of um, of the previous investigation. Uh, I don't see how this is. Uh... Yeah, Ty, what do you think? Do you see any, do you see anything here? I don't I don't I don't see smoke or fire. I think it's going to end up being a big nothing burger, probably. But since these guys can't unite for Trump, they're going to unite against Hillary publicly right before the election. That's what I think this is about. The FBI investigation. Yeah. Look, look, the same like these guys are all grandstanding. That's what I think this is all about. Just look, we don't like Hillary. See, we're we're being honest. We don't like Trump, but we don't like Hillary. See? Oh, I see. Yeah. So so it it makes them look less like they're in the pot. That's that's kind of what I meant, though, about like they they get points for thoroughness and also they get some of their integrity back. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's what I figured. So Ty and I, Ty and I agree on this one. I, I think this is for show. Uh, makes sense from that perspective, though, right? You reopen the investigation. Oh no, we're really, we're really taking it seriously this time, and you know, we're, we're, uh, and you know, may, maybe they, maybe they force somebody. Look, they force that general. That general's going to jail, and the stuff I've read about that. I mean, they could have let this go. He was like allegedly confirming what was already out there. Anyway, I mean, come on, and, and he wasn't even in trouble for disclosure. He's in trouble for lying about disclosure. Uh, so clearly two sets of rules for the Hillary camp and for this uh, former vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Um, that that looked real. That looked bad. I think they, they did that to send a message. And I think the message was kind of the opposite of what they intended, which is, oh, no, we still take this stuff seriously. It's like, well, no, actually, you only take it seriously for people who aren't the Clintons. This is even worse. At least the Hillary defense could have been something that other people tried. But something weird going on here. We've got Halloween coming up. Maybe it'll be a... I don't know. When's the next full moon? Something strange is afoot, my friends. 888-900-3393 if you want to call in. We are rocking and rolling on this Freestyle Friday. We've got some interesting stuff coming up. Stay with me. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Joined by Jeff Ballinger. He is the author of over a dozen books on the paranormal, including the bestsellers The World's Most Haunted Places, Weird Massachusetts, Our Haunted Lives, and Who's Haunting the White House. More on him at jeffballinger.com. Jeff, thank you very much for joining us on Halloween weekend. We appreciate it. It's great to be with you, Buck. Thanks for having me. So what are the scariest places, the most haunted places in America, my friend? Tell me about some of them. Oh, gosh, there's so many to choose from. And to me, sometimes it's the most haunted places are these these buildings. They look decrepit, but more than anything, they have a story to tell. And uh, one of my favorites would be Waverly Hills Sanatorium in Louisville, Kentucky. 
you know, this was an old tuberculosis asylum, a place where, where people with this horrible affliction went, many of them to die. And today it's abandoned, all the windows are gone. And when you walk in there, you just imagine what life must have been like in this, this building just full of coughing, people just struggling for life, and many of them dying. And of course, today it's haunted. Why do we think it's haunted? What, 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 tell me about some of the stories that you've heard or picked up from people about this place. Yeah, so people think it's haunted because they go in there and they see things that don't make sense. They see, you know, shadows walking and you run down the hall thinking some vagrant or something's inside and, and there's no one there and there's nowhere to have them, for them to have gone except out the window. Uh, people see apparitions, they hear voices, they, they see objects move on their own in this building and the reports come in again and again and again. And that's the thing about this phenomenon, you know. You go in there and you say to yourself, I'm of sound mind and body, I'm walking through this building where, where so many people have died and, and history has left a mark. And sometimes you tune into things that you just don't understand. And those reports go back for decades. You know, I've driven past countless times a place called the Harlem Valley. It used to be Harlem Valley Psychiatric Center, which I know locals say. Has that ever come up on your radar? Just out of curiosity? It's a similar place in the sense that they were doing very, uh, what would be considered to be very dangerous and and bad experiments on people with uh, psychological serious psychological issues and it was also a, a prison for the criminally insane they had a prison in the in the back uh and it was 80 abandoned buildings in hudson valley new york it, w- it was just sitting there for a long time and people would always say it was haunted i was just wondering if this ever came up on your radar because i yeah a lot of those hospitals those old kirkbride buildings and they were all over the country these vast complexes of buildings you know and, and at the time it was cutting edge stuff things like lobotomies ice that's right rash. they did lobotomies there shock treatment. And when you go back and you look at the history, and sadly, the history of so many of those buildings is similar in that, you know, during the Great Depression, people are getting themselves committed, not because they're crazy, but because they're destitute. And it's a place for shelter and and meals and so on. And then there's overcrowding and the conditions get bad. And some of these people, you know, I've heard countless reports where folks were lobotomized or, or, or locked in cages just because the short staff couldn't deal with them. And these are human beings. And that kind of stuff haunts us, you know. Um, When people debate about what a ghost is, I think for me the simplest definition is it's a connection to our past. It's a way to bring that to our present and kind of mingle with it. And sometimes we have to reconcile with some some pretty tough things, like the way people were treated at a psychiatric hospital or what happened on a battlefield like Gettysburg or, you know, a, a crime scene and so on. These things literally haunt us. What is the single, for you, out of the places that you've been, I know you've, you've written many books on this and you've been studying paranormal activity for a long time, what is the, for, for you personally, the creepiest, scariest place you've ever been in the, in the continental United States? Uh, for continental United States, I was in Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia, and this is where the word penitentiary comes from. Back when it, it opened, uh, it, everything was, was solitary confinement. The prisoners wore masks. They weren't allowed to communicate or see any human being. You were meant to just be penitent, just a single little window slit that looked up to the sky so you could make your peace with God was the whole idea. And you walk through this this building today, and it, it's still open for tours, though it hasn't been a, a working prison in a long time. You know, you, we walk through at night, and there was one cell block I'm walking through, and, you know, it's pitch dark, and suddenly I'm just petrified. And you just imagine the kinds of people that must have been held in these cages. And you look over to your left and to your right, and all you see is dark. I mean, in the middle, there's a tiny bit of light, so you can see the outlines of the, the, you know, the actual open cells. But inside, it's completely black. 
black as can be, and your imagination starts to run with you, and you think, you know, the, the murderers, the rapists that were all around, you know, all around you, and I think you start to feel it and tune into it. And in that moment, I was completely petrified and found myself kind of gently jogging back to the middle, but I'm supposed to be a professional, so I'm trying to keep my cool as well. Are there any, I'm, I'm here in New York City, are there any places that uh, that give people the, the, the that spook them, that, that freak them out here in, here in New York City proper? Yeah, of course. You know, New York City is pretty good at uh, refurbishing its buildings, you know, and not letting stuff stick around too long. That's some pretty valuable real estate. Uh, I know in the theater district, a lot of those old theaters have got, you know, ghostly reputations and, and things like that, um, you know, along 42nd Street. It makes you wonder, does it have something to do with those old buildings or does it have to do with the nature of theater people who always want an audience around or, or you know, these, these transient folks that, you know, might want to just kind of linger in places where they were happiest so many buildings have a story. Uh, sometimes it's, it's not so much a, an over-the-top reputation as just, you know, well, yeah, you know, sometimes we're closing up at night and we hear things, we see things. And of course, right outside of the city, you've got one of the most infamous haunts in, in America in uh, the Amityville house out in Amityville, Long Island, um, where, you know, the DeFeo murders, six people murdered. And of course, that story has been made into movies and books and so on. Was that, was that the young woman with the axe? Actually, I don't know the story. The, so in, in the 1970s, uh, Ronald Butch DeFeo Jr. murdered his uh, six family members in his house. This is a fact. This happened at 112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville, uh, New York. And uh, DeFeo is still in jail to this day for the crime. The whole family's murdered, and the house sits empty. And as you can imagine, no one really wants to buy it once it's for sale because of the horrific thing that happened. But eventually, uh, a man named George Lutz buys it with his wife, and, and they both come from uh, marriages that had split up, and they kind of combine their families into this house. And they claim they were there for 28 days. And in that time... Uh, just hell broke loose. They they said there was a room where they just there were always flies in the room. They said uh, George Lutz said early on he would be trying to sleep at night and he heard what sounded like an entire marching band downstairs. But he's the only one who hears it and he comes downstairs and there's no one there. Uh, that their their children were being attacked. Their their beds are are vibrating and so on. You know I'm a guy who's into this stuff and I wouldn't want to live in a house where six people were murdered somewhat recently. That would bother me. So 28 days later the family moves out. They start their, their new life. This thing seems to follow them, and eventually they tell their story, which is made into the Amityville Horror book and then the series of movies, which are still going on uh, even in modern times. And we're just compelled to, to tell that story because, to me, I think the haunted house is the most frightening thing of all. You know, you're supposed to feel safe and secure where you live, and if you feel like there's an intruder in there and you can't get rid of it, that's, that rattles you. Do you ever or have you ever in your research of the paranormal – uh, come across, uh, witnessed, uh, or, or at least heard stories of exorcisms. I, I, that always stuck with me because I remember a priest when I was very young, um, maybe high school age, telling me that he was one of the members of the church who performed exorcism. That, that was a real thing. I kind of thought it was just something that you know people talked about and was in movies, but it it, it is a real thing. Have you ever been around that? So uh, just this past Saturday, I was in St. Louis, and um, the the book and movie, The Exorcist was based on a case that uh, took place in St. Louis, and I was at the actual house. I'd, I've uh, done some work and 
uh, on, on various t- television projects about this case. A boy named Roland Doe, Doe being you know the anonymous last name, just to kind of keep his identity uh, obscured, uh, went to St. Louis to uh, go through the rite of exorcism. He stayed with his Catholic aunt and, aunt, uh, aunt and uncle in this you know little neighborhood right outside of St. Louis, and he went through this process. And it's absolutely frightening because you know when we think of ghosts, we think of okay, like dead human beings who might still be lingering for whatever reason. But human beings, we can come to grips with. When we're talking about an exorcism, if you if you believe the the Catholic uh, perception on it, you're talking about a literal monster, something that was never human that's here only to hurt people. How do you reason or reckon with that? How do you come to grips with something that's inhuman? And this this you know poor boy went through a, a series of exorcisms through psychiatric evaluation, medical evaluation, uh, intense prayer, and so on, where priests felt like they were attacked. Um, I talked to the great niece of Father Halloran, who performed the exorcism, uh, who said that she felt like this was just he was such a good and pious man that that the the demon was actually out for. Uh, her great uncle, as opposed to the little boy. The little boy was just the, the way to get to the, the priest. And when you when it comes down to that, I mean, this is really scary stuff. We're getting to really primal parts of the human existence, our deepest, darkest fears, the idea that something could attach itself to us just because it wants to hurt us, and there's very little we can do about it. That's really frightening. Scariest place in the world you've ever been, Jeff. <laughs> Uh, the catacombs of Paris, France. I was um, I was there in 2003, and that's where I saw my first ghost. I've actually I had been writ- writing about ghosts for uh, almost seven eight years at that point, and not that I disbelieved, I just hadn't had the experience. And I was down there alone, 30 meters below the city, surrounded by six million human skeletons, where they had placed, you know, they had emptied the cemeteries in the mid 1700s to 1800s, and they're all around you in this very macabre pattern. And 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 just a just imagine, Buck, you're walking down a hallway where if you stuck your hands out in both directions, your fingertips would be gliding along human skulls, for you know a good. 30, 40 yards down this this hallway. And as I'm walking down there alone, I see a shadow the size of a man move from the right side of the hallway to the left and back. And I just froze. And I looked and I'm like, okay, wait a minute. No one got by me. I mean, you would have literally bumped into me. And then I'm looking, could there be a side tunnel somewhere? And there's nothing there. And the, the other thing was, this was the way out. I had to keep going that way. And I had no explanation for it, no word whatsoever, except ghost. And in that instant, I was like, this is what everybody must be talking about when they go through that experience. You can't shake it. You can't explain it. But there it is. It doesn't make any sense for how you were told the universe is supposed to work. But yet it happened to you. And now you have to live with it. They made a, a movie of the catacombs, there, didn't they? As Above, So Below, I believe. Isn't that, It's in the yeah, Paris catacombs. Pink in that or something? Like the, the, the singer Pink? Was I, don't, I didn't see it, but I, I know they made the movie. Yeah, no, I, you know, I'm, I'm not a cataphile. I just, uh, I, when I'm in Paris, some people go to the Louvre or the Musée d'Orsay, and I go underground. That's just kind of how I roll, you know. I didn't know that was a place you could go. Very interesting. What are your top, uh, Jeff? What are your top uh, two or three for people that are going to be celebrating Halloween this weekend or on Monday? For you, best scary movies of all time. Oh, God, I, I love The Exorcist. I think it's just so frightening. Maybe it's because, in full disclosure, I was raised Catholic, and um, you know that that kind of resonates on another level for me. Uh, I love Exorcist, and I love Poltergeist. And let me add a level to uh, Poltergeist. In, in the movie, I'm just going to assume most of your listeners have heard it or seen it. Uh, you know, they build this beautiful neighborhood over a former cemetery, but they never moved the the bodies. They just moved the headstones. And you think, wow, that would never happen. Guess what? <laughs> it happens all the time. Old cemeteries, very rarely do they actually dig up the, 
you know, dig up the coffins. They just move the headstones. It happens again and again and again and again. Uh, and there are examples all over the United States. So if you find yourself buying a house that's on the site of a former cemetery, be careful how deep you dig. Jeff Bellinger is a paranormal researcher, author of over a dozen books, including bestsellers, The World's Most Haunted Places, Weird Massachusetts, Our Haunted Lives, and Who's Haunting the White House. All these are up on Amazon. You can also learn more about Jeff at jeffbellinger.com. Jeff, really appreciate you coming on. I really appreciate you coming on and have a happy Halloween. Yeah, you too. The veil's growing thin. Watch out for ghosts. Thanks, my man. Talk soon. Uh, all right, team, we'll be back after the break. Buck Sexton, the Blaze Radio Network. I need to open with a very critical breaking news announcement. The FBI has just sent a letter to Congress informing them that they have discovered new emails pertaining to the former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton's investigation. I still don't think this is going anywhere. In fact, if Hillary wins the election, this then drags out and they'll announce at some point that there's, you know, no no change in the FBI's position or posture on the on this issue. And then it will seem like, oh, well, the FBI tried really, really hard. And Hillary partisans can say, see, they even reopened it. That's how serious they were. I think it's all for show. I do. Keith in Alaska, you're on the Buck Sexton Show. What's up? Hey, Buck. Uh, thanks for the call. Um, Thank I, you. I think you're right. I, th- I don't think anything's going to come of it. But one thing it will do is it will add a serious amount of uh, fire to uh, Trump's campaign. And I also wanted to say that I, I was wondering if, they don't, the FBI doesn't know that like WikiLeaks is getting ready to dump the 33,000 emails out there and they're just trying to get ahead of it. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, that's, uh, that's the rumor that I'm seeing on social media and it is a social media rumor. It is rumor, rumor intelligence is that they may have found the delete, like emails that were deleted that were not initially found. And clearly the most important emails in this whole situation would be the ones that Hillary intentionally deleted and had scrubbed from the server. So if they found some of those, that would be interesting. Uh, That could be very interesting. Um, I just I'm I'm not you know, I'm sort of flying blind here. I I don't know what they have and I don't know what the emails are. And to me, it's just how does the FBI given what we've seen from the FBI so far, it would be very uh, surprising if they decided all of a sudden that Hillary wasn't above the law and there then there was a willingness to uh, to hold her to account. I just I just can't see it happening, especially given look, the polls all say Hillary's going to win. Basically, I, I'm, I'm not saying she's going to win. The polls all say that. Right. So look what they did for a candidate, the FBI and the DOJ. Then imagine what they'd be willing to do for a sitting president. 
I mean, it's just there's just no way. I just can't see it. But I, I'm going to really think on this one. I'm I'm going to I'm going to pulse my sources over the weekend. I'm actually going to call my peeps and see like what the heck is going on here. No, I, I totally agree with you. I don't think anything will come of it. I just think that maybe they're trying to get out ahead of something. And then also, Buck, you're doing a great show today. Thank you. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. All right, team. Welcome to our three in the Freedom Hut today. Very pleased to be joined by Dr. Tom Garza. He's an associate professor of Slavic and Eurasian studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Dr. Garza researches vampire lore in Slavic culture, the Russian fairy tale, and the popularity of the vampire in modern America. Dr. Garza, great to have you, sir. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So please give give us a bit of background. Vampires. When did people first start talking about it, and and what's the association with with Slavic cultures in Eastern Europe? Sure. The vampire story is one of the oldest stories and then becomes a myth that we've got really in Western civilization, and indeed it also exists in Eastern civilization probably before that. For us, it's a story that's just over 2,000 years old, probably starting in South Asia around uh, the Indian Peninsula, came across in the Silk Road trade with a lot of movement of Roma gypsy populations into the southern part of Europe. Um, right about at the same time, Christianity starts to build in this region, and so it becomes a kind of pop culture mythological folklore and religious theme that happens all together sometime around the early medieval period. So we're looking at about a thousand years ago that the story really takes root in uh, South Europe, what we would call what used to be Yugoslavia, sort of now the area of Serbia, Croatia. The most famous vampire story of all time, of course, is Vlad Dracula, uh, Vlad the Impaler. Uh, you bet. When, when did that association first start to happen? I've talked before on the show a bit about the real Vlad in the sense that he was, uh, a, you know, Eastern European prince and he raised in the Ottoman court and was involved in fighting against the Ottoman Empire. But the, the vampire aspects of that story came into it how and when? So uh, this is a story that's from the 15th century. Vlad rules an area that's officially called Wallachia, part of Transylvania, which today would be. Uh, the sort of northeast, sorry, northwest to central area of Romania. Uh, he rules from 1456 to 72, 1472. And during that time, and you're quite right, he was he was known pretty much of what we would call a Christian crusader. He was the, uh, the sort of leader that was 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 the one who rallied troops, a very kind of ragtag group of troops together to fight the Ottoman Turks and the movement of Islam into Central Europe. Um, he's by many still to present day in the region considered to be the one who who stopped the the flow of, of, of uh, the Muslim Turks into that region. So he becomes known as Vlad the Impaler for one of his more infamous tricks of helping to keep the Turks at bay, to keep them away by staking literally through the body with long wooden stakes the bodies of his uh, uh, his cap the, the, the people that he would capture. 
Turks that he would have brought onto the front lines on stake still half alive, writhing in pain. And this would <laughs> it would tend to deter troops from coming across those lines. And as a result, he became known as a bloodthirsty prince. And that bloodthirst turned into a literally a bloodlust. Stories began to uh, to evolve that he drank the blood of his victims. And in this became known as Vlad the Impaler and Vlad Dracul, the, 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 the dragon, uh, which became associated with vampires. Now, how much of this stuff that is said about him, other than what he sort of did to his uh, Ottoman enemies, which is well chronicled and the, the impaling technique, of course, why he's Vlad the Impaler. But there are other stories as well about him being bloodthirsty at, at home. Uh, and I don't mean bloodthirsty as in drinking the blood, of course, that was added later, but just somebody who was a very vicious, uh, vicious, uh, vicious and savage uh, ruler to those that you know got in his way or that, that were in some sense a threat to his power. Were those sort of Turkish and sort of folklore stories that, you know, boogeyman stories that popped up after? Or how bad a guy was Vlad the Impaler, really, is what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, well, I think you know, the Turks didn't didn't help with the with the the story building, the myth making about the guy. There's no question about it. They made him out to be much worse than he probably was. But truth be told, I mean, he uh, if we want to do a pop psychology analysis of the guy he had a very unhappy childhood he had a very difficult time with his siblings was was not happily ensconced in his uh princeton his he was challenged by his own son in fact for his rule and as a result i think he developed a, a lot of the um, uh, ruthless characteristics that we now associate with uh the period with the 15th century of being if you wanted to if you wanted to rule a, a region successfully, you had to do it with an iron fist. And so he did a lot of things besides the impaling that gave him this reputation of being uh, this bloodthirsty or very cruel ruler. These are not just folkloric um, stories. These actually were documented a lot by the religious people at the time, who in many cases were trying to to make a case against Dracula to get him out of power. Things like because uh, uh, holy people wouldn't take their caps off in front of him, he would have his servants nail their caps on to their heads while they were still alive. And uh, uh, things like like that, uh, locking people into a a room that he had brought in, what we would call the boyers, the ruling class, because they weren't paying their taxes, bring them into a room for, for a dinner and then lock the room, nail the door shut and set the entire place ablaze. Um, this, these were the kind of techniques, should I call them, I suppose, his uh, antics that got him the reputation of ble- being bloodthirsty. So I don't know if you're familiar with the Game of Thrones series, but he's he's kind of like maybe maybe a little less crazy than Ramsey Bolton, but he's definitely the Lannisters <laughs> on a bad day. I couldn't agree more. And in fact, I think the Game of Thrones has helped my enrollments a lot. In, in, in the course I teach on the Slavic Vampire, I think they, uh, my kind of GOT fans like to try to see the similarities between uh, fact and fiction, between the historic vampires and the characters created on Game of Thrones. Yeah, I'm always fascinated when people point out that there are some uh, some of the, the most... Uh gruesome sort of sequences and scenes in that are taken from different parts of history. I, I believe the, the the Red Wedding is, is roughly, uh, I've been told, based on, I think it was the uh, s- two Scottish clans, and there was, you couldn't kill somebody when they were your guest, but they essentially had everybody, they had the one clan over, and then as they were leaving, whatever, the fortified position, the castle, they had everybody strangled and stabbed to death right there after breakfast. So, you know, this is, this stuff, this stuff, bad things happen in history, and then you can make it uh, excellent in fiction. Uh, but speaking of bad things happening in history, I also want to ask you about the, who is the female vampire in the six, 16th or 17th century? I'm forgetting her name. 
late 16th, the very beginning of the 17th. This is Elizabeth Bakary. Yeah. Elizabeth Bakary of Hungary is, uh, is one bad uh, dudette, I suppose. She's, uh, she was the, uh, the, the successor in many respects to the uh, reputation that Vlad uh, Dracula had about ruling with an iron fist. In this case, it wasn't being tormented by her father, but rather her husband, who was an incredibly cruel, ruthless ruler. And when he died, she took over the, the throne in, in Hungary and really didn't want to prove that a woman could run the place at least as ruthlessly as her husband did. Uh, her reputation was much more direct, actually, than, than Vlad Dracula's was about the connection to blood in that she, er, fairly early in her reign, uh, considered, she was always considered, even as a young, a young woman, considered to be quite beautiful. And as she took over the, uh, the throne, wanted to keep that as a central part of her ability to, uh, to rule effectively was that she stay this, this beautiful woman, but very ruthless woman at the same time. And the story goes that she discovers while having her hair brushed by a servant at one time who accidentally pricks her skin that, uh, as she wipes the blood on her face, she feels it tightening and, and sees that her face has actually become more youthful and ma- from that makes the great leap to bathing in blood. She uh, collects female servants, takes, uh, kills them, takes their blood, and then bathed in it. And these uh, 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 murders went on over the course of several years during her reign. And it was only until villagers in the, in the adjacent area noticed that the, the young, their young daughters and all who would go to work as servants in Batari Castle never returned, that they uh, finally sent police, the equivalent of police gendarme, up to the castle who discovered the body of somewhere between four and 600 uh, young girls that had been killed over several years. So that's in the historical record. This is not; these are not apocryphal stories that have now turned into uh, things that people accept as true. We actually believe that's that she was correct. a she was a, a serial killer on a level that we've really never seen in this country. Exactly, exactly. And so again, the the interesting thing from my perspective, when when we include her in the vampire myth, is that this bloodlust tends often to be simply uh, piled on to the larger vampire story that says you have, one has actually to drink the blood uh, of, a, of, a, of a living person in order to keep your life going on. Um, Bakari, we never have evidence. There is no historical record, any kind of chronicle that says she actually drank the blood of these victims, but by the fact that she used it in a way that at least she thought was preserving her youth, it, it gave her this vampiric characteristic and reputation. It is a, the vampire myth, obviously, in pop culture has become a huge thing. There are countless series. Many of them have done extraordinarily well all over the world, whether we're talking about books or movies. And, and of course, there's the classic uh, Dracula story and, and the, all the iterations of that. Has this? Uh, are, are there different sort of versions of the vampire myth in other cultures that we're not quite as familiar with? Is it something that's either been picked up or has existed in other places longer? I mean, I'm just trying to think of... You know, are, are there, you know, is there a South American equivalent to the vampire story or some version of it? Or does East Asia have some equivalent or is this really rooted in Eastern Europe and has sort of just had reverberations outward from there? Oh, it's a, a terrific question. And that actually uh, one of the reasons I believe this myth is quite as enduring as it is globally is because it is a global story. Uh, I think I said at the very beginning, the very first iterations we really have of the story, any historical records anyway, go back closer to 3,000 years, and those are East Asian, coming out of China and Japan. We have several figures, almost all female, 
that uh, kept their life going or returned from the dead by drinking blood. The Kali story, the goddess of death who drinks uh, blood as the person dies from India. One of the oldest stories as we move further west. South America and North America both have stories, Native American stories, of spirits who drink the blood of the living so that they may remain able to come onto uh, the earth. I mean, even even some of our more uh, folkloric reiterations of that story with things like the uh, where, where I'm from in Texas. Here in Texas, we have the story of the Chupacabra from uh, from Mexico on northward of a kind of goat like a, a goat sucking creature, a creature that comes in and drinks the blood of livestock for in order to stay alive. So no, this is actually pretty much an attested story on all continents um, and has been for, as I said, somewhere between three, uh, two and three thousand years. Uh, Dr. Garza, is there anywhere that people can go to read your writings on this? Do you have a book uh, that, that compiles some of your research on this? Where can people learn more? I've got a couple of articles that are in a compilation called Origins of the Vampire. Uh, that just came out a couple of years ago where I talk specifically about the development of the vampire myth in Slavic areas, which is what I teach. And I also have a compilation volume of my own called uh, The Vampire in Slavic Cultures. And that's a compilation, an edition that I did of, of uh, writings from biblical times to the 21st century, just literally to a few years ago. Um, and all of these are, those are both available on good old Amazon.com. All right. Look up Dr. Tom Garza on Amazon.com. Yeah. Learn more about the exactly. actual history of vampires. Dr. Garza, great having you. Really appreciate your insight today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Buck, as well. And have a terrific, terrific Halloween. You too, sir. Happy Halloween. Uh, team, we're going to hit a break. We'll be right back. This is the Buck Sexton Show. On the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. You know, team, I don't want to leave werewolves out of this whole thing. The first werewolf reference that I know of uh, comes from Greek mythology. Uh, Lycaon was the leader, the king of the Greek uh, province of Arcadia. And there are different versions of the story, but he he wanted to see if Zeus was truly all-knowing. And so he uh, fed him the flesh of a... Of, a, of his son, Nyctimus. Um And Zeus then, in, as punishment for this, turned Lycaon into a, where, into a wolf, essentially, into a, into a werewolf. Uh, so this is also why, by the way, if you are a fan of the Underworld series uh, with the attractive British actress whose name escapes me, Kate Beckinsale, uh, they are uh, vampires and lichens. That's what they call werewolves, lichens. Lichens come from Lycaon. Uh, so it's ancient Greek mythology where you have the first reference to what is a sort of man-wolf, a man being turned into a wolf, a werewolf, as a punishment. So we're just dropping myth and monster knowledge left and right on this show today. Bam! Kate in Tennessee, what's up? Hi, Buck. It's so nice to talk to you again. Very nice to talk to you. Um, I, you know, I wanted to ask you, you know how you got into the CIA, but 
I will ask another day. But I wanted to tell you about a little quick supernatural thing that happened to me. I was working at Boeing. This was about 16 years ago. And we were in an old warehouse, and we were on Kelly Air Force Base. And if you know the history of San Antonio, that's where a lot of the um, uh, planes and everything training for World War II happened. Well, one of the warehouses that we were in, they had a refrigerated section, and that's where they used to put the corpses of the military members who were killed in action until they could ship them to, you know, their hometown. Well, anyway, I'm alone in the warehouse one night. I'm putting um, inventory up. And about the length of a football field, there was a chair beside one of the shelves. And didn't think anything of it, had walked by it a hundred times. But this night, I see someone sitting in the chair. Now, I'm alone in the warehouse. Everything's locked. There's no way anybody can get in. And it's like he was bent over and having a conversation with someone. And it kind of threw me. I mean, I'm not spooked or anything like that, you know, naturally, but it was just kind of like, whoa. And I just kind of went, <gasps> and I looked down and I looked up and it was gone. And I thought, wow, you know, I got to lay off the coffee. It's two o'clock in the morning. But when I walked past the chair, there was just like this really weird energy source and this little bit of a hum. I, I've never forgotten it after 16 years. And I think, you know, it, it kind of spooked me. And when I told my coworkers we were on a rotating schedule, they got so freaked out that I was the one stuck on the third shift for the remainder of my time there at Boeing. But uh, I've never forgotten it. And I just thought I'd share it. Wow. Okay, very interesting. So uh, you're telling us, but you ain't afraid of no ghost, so that's important. No, not really, no. <laughs> it's a Ghostbusters reference, it, but anyway, just checking. Yeah, oh, yeah. yes. Well, yeah, you you were in diapers when that came out, but yeah. <laughs> I, was like, I, was not, I was like five, I think. All right, Kate from Tennessee, thank you for calling in, sharing your story. Very nice to talk to you. Appreciate it. Shields high. Uh, do we have time for, yeah, we got Sam in Pennsylvania. What's up, Sam? Hey, Shields high, Buck. She'll tie. Hey, um, uh, you're not your last guest. One before that, talking about uh, same asylums and stuff like that. If you go on the internet and go to nysasylum.com, I believe, yeah, uh, or you look up Castle on the Hill in Binghamton, you'll find a insane asylum from the 1800s, and you can go through, look at the history and the voices, and see how they treat the patients, and uh, different stories of specific patients. There's a lot of neat stuff to read on there. And this place is uh, definitely haunted. Uh, okay. I mean, sure, I guess. Uh, I mean, de- de- definitely is a strong word, but uh, I'll, I'll look in. Where do we find this stuff? Um, you can look up uh, Castle on the Hill in Binghamton or nysasylum.com. Okay. And go to history and voices under history. And there's a lot of neat stuff, a lot of neat reading on there about the history yeah. of... Uh, there's an island. I hear you, Sam. Thank you for calling from Pennsylvania, my man. Shields high, and uh, have a happy Halloween. There's an island off of New York where they used to send people with tuberculosis, I think. It's just off of New York City. And it's super. it's a very spooky place. 
I'll try to remember the name of it, or maybe I'll pull it up, and uh, we'll talk about it on the other side of the break. But they would essentially just send people there to die of tuberculosis. And, and I think there was other... Uh, also, what's the uh, typhus, I think, maybe? If you had typhus, I think they might have sent you there. They just would, like, ferry you over to this island, drop you there, and be like, have fun with the other sick, dying people. You're on your own. And people just die. It was bad news. This is New York City. Uh, I'll try to find the name of that. And we've got a lot more coming up. Are we going to be talking about Bigfoot? I ain't afraid of no ghost. We'll be right back. The Bug Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Show. Team, the island I was trying to think of was North Brother Island, which is just off of uh, New York City, and it was where Typhoid Mary was housed, the actual Typhoid Mary, and it was a uh, used as a, a place to put people who were con- had contagious disease. It was basically a quarantine hospital or quarantine island. It's completely abandoned, and it is spooky. We're joined now by Cliff uh, Brockman. He is a Bigfoot field researcher and co-host of Animal Planet's Finding Bigfoot. He's on Twitter at Cliff Brockman. Cliff, great to have you. Oh, thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it. All right. How did you get into the realm of being an official Bigfoot researcher, sir? Well, I guess uh, it started when I was a little kid because I've always been a little eccentric for sure. Um, you know, I grew up loving monsters and all that stuff. And, you know, I'm 45 years old, so I was growing up in the 1970s, blessed with such television gems as In Search Of and all that sort of stuff. You know, the paranormal things that we used to watch with the family, you know, Sunday nights or whenever it was on. So I was always really interested in Sasquatches. But when I was in college, um, it, it kind of t- took a new flavor for me because what happened was I ran across a journal book, like a book of scholarly papers collected uh, from a conference in British Columbia written by anthropologists talking about the Sasquatch phenomenon from the perspective of cultural and physical anthropology. And that's when I started realizing, holy smokes, this isn't just any like sort of monster like Godzilla. These things might be real. And that was way back in 1994. And I've been uh, out in the woods ever since, you can say. All right. So, you know, we're doing a lot of Halloween stuff today. We've talked about the history of vampire mythology and lore. Some of the historical figures vampires are based off of. We also had somebody on talking about ghost stories and haunted places. Uh, to those who are just stalwart Bigfoot skeptics, Cliff, what would you offer to just just open the door a little bit in their minds that there could be something to all this? Please start to make the case. Well, I, I guess if I had to make the case for a skeptic, what, the first thing I would do, I would invite him or her to examine their knowledge base about Sasquatches. What do they really know about the work that's been done before them? Um, because by and large, I find the skeptics to be the least informed people about Sasquatches. The arguments they throw out, like, oh, there's not enough food. Okay, you can shoot that one down. There's plenty of food. There's no place for them to hide. Okay, you can shoot that one down. But those people clearly haven't spent any time in North American woods. Um, uh, all of this has been proven fake. Or Okay, well, you can look behind the bad media that uh, represented that back when Ray Wallace died. Um, I find that the skeptics are the least informed of all of us, uh, for, especially for those um, professing an opinion on the matter. Um, so I would encourage any skeptic 
before before looking into the Sasquatch thing, ask oneself, how much do you really know about the work that's been done by people like Dr. Grover Krantz or Dr. Jeff Meldrum from Idaho State University or uh, Dr. John Bindernagel, retired wildlife biologist? Like, how much do they know about the work that's been done? And, I, and if they're honest with themselves, they're going to say very little or nothing at all. Well, tell us where that research and where that work currently stands. What what are some of the uh, bits of evidence that, that are still sort of that have not yet been uh, either discredited or, or cast out? And, and what is the composite that we have? If there is such a thing as a Bigfoot, what is the composite of that creature? Well, basically, Sasquatches are a perfectly normal species of primate that happens to walk on two legs and live in North America. Um, it's as simple as that. There's no paranormal aspect to them. They don't blink in and out of existence. They don't ride UFOs. There's nothing like that. And treating them as a perfectly normal species of great ape, a lot like us, because we're a perfectly normal species of great ape, when you look at the collected data on the species, you have everything one would expect from perfectly normal species, except for one thing, a type specimen, basically a dead one proving that it's real. Um, we do have footprints. We do have uh, hundreds and actually thousands, tens of thousands of eyewitness reports. Um, we have uh, possible scat samples that have not been tested, unfortunately, because who wants to test that crap? No pun intended. Um, but yeah, it, scat's it, a fancy so word for poop, more. everybody. Go ahead. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, I, some, some of the more compelling pieces of evidence is, of course, the 1967 Patterson-Gimlin film, which, uh, despite uh, the media outcry, has never actually been disproven. And, in fact, the people who look at it um, the, the most close, uh, the more, more closely than others, like um, special effects uh, expert Bill Munns, they all walk away saying, holy crap, either it's real or I have no idea how they could have done that. Um, I think the footprint evidence is probably the most compelling hard evidence that can be examined by non-biased scientists because the footprint evidence shows uh, ape-like characteristics um, and, and human-like characteristics as well. But there's one particular piece of evidence based on the footprint evidence, which is uh, the, 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 the flexibility of the mid part of the foot, which is an ape characteristic, not a human characteristic. That feature has been seen in the footprint evidence since 1958, and was only explained when the anatomist, Dr. Jeff Meldrum, wrote a paper about it in 1996. So, um, and again, I could go on about a lot of congruencies as well between the film and the footprints and other things that are happening, but I think those are two of the strongest pillars of evidence for the Sasquatch. So, so Sasquatch is the, is the preferred, that's the preferred nomenclature over Bigfoot, right? Well, really, you know, either one works totally fine. Sasquatch is um, an anglicized coast Salish word. Um, uh, there's a white teacher up on the Stahelas Reserve in British Columbia. Um, his Indian friends were talking about these, these large hair-covered things out in the woods, um, and he couldn't spell their word for it. So he coined the word Sasquatch to make it easy for him to write about. And then, of course, Bigfoot was coined in 1958 when a log-building crew cast the very first known Sasquatch footprint cast in uh, Northern California. Now, is there is there any connection in terms of the the, the research is being done with with Sasquatch with Bigfoot and uh, the the Yeti or the Abominable Snowman? Are these supposed to be all the sort of same same species in different places in the world? Well, basically, what's well, a Yeti honestly, and what's an Abominable Snowman versus what's a Sasquatch? Well, really, we don't know actually because um, we have a few hundred footprint casts for the Sasquatch here in North America, but the Yeti evidence is 
so much less than that. There's probably less than five footprint casts that are, are, are reliable that have come out of that entire mountain range, the Himalayas. Um, and I've been to the Himalayas looking for the Yeti, and it really comes down to the people who live there um, in Nepal and Tibet and Bhutan and other areas, they're kind of busy surviving to they don't really care what these, you know, uh, American or European scientists are, are looking into. They've got better things to do, like grow potatoes and feed their family, than to go looking for things that they know exist because they grew up with them. Hmm. You know, and so, that's also very similar with the Native Americans here in North America, um, which is also, I think, a very compelling piece of evidence, is that every Native American tribe um, that lives where Sasquatches live have Bigfoots or a word for Bigfoots in their um, oral history without exception. And unless all the Native Americans got together a couple thousand years ago in anticipation of being taken over by their European dominators and kind of set this up beforehand, that's an awfully strange coincidence if these things are not real. So what's supposed to be the main, the main Sasquatch habitat in North America? Is, the, is it the uh, sort of northwest of Canada, or where are they supposed to really be hanging out? Well, uh, initially, uh, in the early days of research, we thought these things were just a Pacific Northwest deal. And that's because, uh, and largely because that's where the most habitat still exists. Um, but um, John Green, a pioneer Bigfoot investigator in the 1970s, went around the country collecting stories. And what he found is that it's not a Pacific Northwest phenomenon at all. Um, people all over the country who live or visit viable habitat occasionally see these things. And then, of course, later on, it was discovered that Native Americans, you know, whether they're in uh, Florida, uh, Ohio, or Washington, it doesn't matter. They, ha- they also have been seeing these things for as long as those people have been living in those areas. So really, it's not a regional thing. It's more of a, um, a habitat-associated thing. Wherever there's viable habitat, you can look back and probably find a Sasquatch sighting at one point or another. Huh. Very interesting. Just so like we're... black bears, just like elk, just like bison. Just yeah. Like have you deer. had any? Have just you like had any close encounters uh, on the uh, uh, close encounters with with bears, jag, uh, cougars, anything like that? When you're out there looking for Bigfoot, just out of curiosity, I feel like that's probably that that would be a, a occupational hazard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, but really, um, if you're smart in the woods, they aren't that much of a hazard, honestly. Bears, um, by and large, can be treated as very large dogs. If you can deal with one of those, you can probably deal with a bear, unless, of course, it's a mother and cub, in which case there's a wild card there. And mountain lions, um, I- I've been in the woods an awful lot, like probably more than your average person, right? Um, I've seen two mountain lions in the last, you know, I'm 45 years old, so I've seen two mountain lions in my entire life. I'm sure I've been watched by mountain lions dozens of times. But by and large, we're, we're big animals. Human beings are just big animals, and all the other animals, including Bigfoots and bears and wherever else, know to stay away from us because we're bad news. All right. Well, Cliff, you've got to promise us that if you get any ironclad evidence of Bigfoot, you've got to come back on the show and tell us about it. Deal? Well, I guarantee you'll hear about it for sure. <laughs> okay. Well, at least we'll hear about it. Cliff Barockman is a Bigfoot re- uh, researcher and co-host of Animal Planet's Finding Bigfoot. He is at Cliff Barockman on Twitter. Sir, we really appreciate you coming on and talking to us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, all right. So we talked, we've talked uh, werewolves, vampires, Bigfoot, ghosts. The show's been pretty awesome, right? I mean, let's be real. We'll go into a break. We'll be right back. Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.
is the Buck Sexton Show. Brian in Pennsylvania. Welcome to the Freedom Hut, sir. What's up? Hey, Buck. Hey. Thank you uh, again for uh, giving us the clarity of uh, thought three hours a day. Uh, and uh, just want to let you know how much of a uh, big help you are to so many of us out there uh, with everything that you do every day. Thank you very much. But, that means uh, a lot. I appreciate that. And I wanted to get a little more serious, and let's talk DuckTales. Let's do it. All right. Ooh. Well, you know, <laughs> you know, I just I have a lot of uh, nieces, nephews, a couple young kids now, and I'm watching what what they're watching on TV these days, and I just think that uh, Ducktales really brings back a lot of the uh, capitalistic adventure roots that are missing our society these days. I think something that uh, more children should be watching these days. In fact, I made it a point to get a DVD set for all my nieces and nephews last Christmas, and every one of them loves it. And uh, you know, a very close second to that would probably be Tailspin. Uh, but uh, you know, I just wanted to second the notion that Ducktales is a is a great show, and it should uh, should get more of those shows like that out there these days. I agree with you, man. It's a classic. What 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 are the kids watching these days? I have no idea. I have very little contact with anybody under the age of you know twenty. <laughs> uh, not too many good things, but uh, I'd say a lot of them. I I've, I don't want to bring up any specific notions off the top of my head, but I will say that. Uh, a lot of false values being taught and huh. uh, not a lot of personal accountability, it seems Are like. Teletubbies still a thing, or do I sound like somebody who's really out of touch? I'm probably really out of thank, touch. That's... Thank God they're not. They're thank not, God okay. They're not. Yeah. And, oh. and neither is Barney. What, what, what are you, are you going to watch a horror movie this weekend, or are you not into that stuff? Uh, not really into that stuff. But, yeah. uh, I kind of want to watch The yeah. Omen. That's, that's the only one on the list that I've heard is scary but actually good. You know, it's not just scary and, like, there's nothing to it. I've heard The Omen is a well-made and good movie, so I might I might check that out, although I don't know. The Exorcist freaks me out too much. It's funny that that guy who called in, our guest, said that's the, that's the scariest movie to him. I, I totally agree, and I lived... Brian, by the way, uh, thank you for your kind words, man, and uh, um, high-five on the DuckTales reference. Um, yeah, I, I live near The Exorcist steps. When I'm near, I walk past them every single day when I live in D.C. I mean, I, I there was ne- never a day went by that I didn't walk past the stairs that are really among the final sequences in The Exorcist. Um, and you can't walk past that. And, and, and the, the movie takes place in Georgetown. So it's supposed to take place in Georgetown. I don't know where they filmed it. Um, that, is a, that is the creepiest movie ever. Uh, another good movie, I'm not, I'm not up on horror films. And I don't like the slasher blood stuff. I mean, I need uh, things that are have a little bit more of a sort of um, good versus evil. If there's sort of a, a tie-in to the devil and Christianity, those things I, th- I think are better than like, oh, look at this like weird monster that came out of nowhere and is like eating people's faces. Uh, but uh, if, if we're going to do weird monsters, there's I think it's called the Descent, and it's a bunch of women go under like they do sort of cave diving or ca- or spelunking or whatever you call it, where you're sort of like going into underground caves, and uh, there's some weird like monsters down there, and it's because they work the claustrophobia aspect into it really well. It's a very very effective, super creepy movie uh, that I would. Uh, recommend any of you heard of that i also thought that the movie about uh the, the chernobyl diaries for what it was was pretty for like a low budge horror film i think they did a pretty good job and they did go to uh a they did go to like a place in ukraine near chernobyl for the so the the authenticity of the of the filming feels pretty legit i cannot watch the hills have eyes i actually can't believe that that movie got made 
uh, I saw some of it, and it's one of the few times where The Hills Have Eyes actually has scenes in it that are right up there with what happened in the Walking Dead premiere this last weekend. Like the, it's, and if there's, there's like an unrated version that's on, it was on like Cinemax or HBO or something or one of those channels ever, and I was like, this is this is like psychologically scarring. I cannot watch this, so I do not recommend that one to any of you. That one is messed up. Um, I'm trying to think of other. Um, I've never seen. Oh, The Shining is obviously great and a classic, and very, very scary, but very you know w- worthwhile filmmaking. Ty, what's the best scary movie of all time? Uh, Hellraiser. Hellraiser, really? I've never seen that one. Okay. I, I really love those first three. I think Pinhead is the, the scariest of the scary. Okay, well there we have it. That 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 was not one that would have come to mind. And then Friday the Thirteenth and all that. I think all that stuff is garbage. I don't like that stuff. So it's that's just slasher nonsense. It's amazing how much money those things made in the 80s. Uh, team, that's our sort of mixed show on a Friday here. A definite freestyle with all kinds of monster lore and stories and background and also some breaking news on Hillary's emails. We got everything in here today. Uh, Monday, we're going to be hitting it hard on the news cycle, so get ready for that. But have a fantastic uh, Halloween weekend. I know Halloween's Monday. Um, and uh, please download today's show. A great one to share with friends because it's outside the usual. Until Monday, my friends, Shields High. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network.